I spent most of my youth in South London until well into my 30s at different houses. But it's a very vivid area. It's, uh, it's never dull, it's always changing. It has a tremendous vibrancy that very few parts of the country would understand. Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. This is Steve Walsh. Hello. Springy hair for a white man. (laughs) (laughs) Today we're going to be talking about blue plaques and erecting four of our own. In the borough of Greenwich, a three-time Oscar-winning actor. In Southwark, a woman who literally gave birth to Australia. Not literally. In Lambeth, Britain's least hated Prime Minister of our lifetimes. And in Lewisham, a landmark in broadcasting history. If you go to southlondonhardcore.com, you can see pictures of all the blue plaques we've put up. We're on Twitter as well, at SLHC. Earlier, Steve, what was the phrase you used to describe the homemade blue plaques that we've done? Was it something like circular information slice? <laughs> oh no, uh, what did I call it? Uh, bes- I think it was a bespoke lump of information. I think you said slice, man. Did I say slice? Okay. Yeah, I'm sure people are aware of blue plaques, but if you're not, in the main, they're organised by English Heritage and they're placed on buildings that have a particular significance, usually based around occupants of the building. Sometimes activities within the building, but usually people who have lived there or were born there. I always assumed it was for people who were born there. But it does seem that English heritage has got a bit shady over the years. Well, the problem with that is, as well, you just have, like, hundreds of blue plaques on the side of hospitals, wouldn't Yeah, you? that never occurred to me. It was only when we were doing the research this, I was like, yeah, just do it where people are born. But, yeah, it will just be, you know, hospitals and the occasional, you know, house. Home birth. Yeah, or, uh, you know, a bus, bus shelter where someone didn't quite make it. You can't, you know, probably just... But even then, when I started looking at where they're putting up plaques and why they're putting up plaques... I had issues with some of them. They're like they're putting up plaques to Nathaniel Hawthorne, an American novelist, because he stayed in a place in London. Stayed in. I mean, you know, if, if you can, if, I've never even heard of the guy. If he, I think he did uh, Scarlet Letter, which uh, I've never even heard of that book. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it just it just seemed odds. You know, uh, it, it seems like there's a, a sliding scale where they were like, this person was born here, this person lived here. As in, had it as a permanent residence, but stayed here. The four we've picked, they're all significant things happened in those buildings. Absolutely. There's, there's not, significant, not necessarily no, no. significant things happened in those buildings, or they were the primary residence for the person. Just discovered, Steve, reading my notes now, that this year is the 150th anniversary of uh, when the idea of Blue Plants was first proposed. And that is a shame, because obviously at the moment the scheme is suspended. This should be a year of... Celebration and... Plaques on plaques on plaques. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, everyone realised why they'd done this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Memorial tablets, they were referred to. It's a brilliant idea, isn't it? Yeah, it was an MP who came up with it, shifted over to the Society of Arts, and then, you know, gradually... Falls into English Heritage. Yeah, exactly. LCC did it they've, for a while. They've listed all the buildings, so now put things on the side of them, please. You've listed this building, can you put something on the side of it in direct contradiction of your listing of this building? Hmm. 
Yeah, they chose blue was chosen because uh, you know it stands out against the kind of cut London colour scheme, I suppose. Yeah. They've only been blue since nineteen twenty one. Yeah, and there's various sort of coloured ones now from various institutions, isn't there? And yeah, if you go on the English Heritage website, they've got a kind of guide to blue plaques and blue plaques that they don't do. I should say plaques, really, because it's. I mean, there are thousands of schemes, it seems, yeah. and some of them are. Like when we went to Bob Hope's house in Eltham, like that was um, a square sort of piece of film yeah. shaped one, wasn't it? Doing the research for the show really made me reassess how we do the show and what we do in the show. It was really nice to sort of... Because we've done a lot of research on a lot of areas and people and ideas. And it was nice that there's still things that we've missed. It makes me sort of think that even where we've sort of gone through this area quite thoroughly, we're still going to find things constantly, aren't we? It's nice. Yeah, you um, speak to people that we know who don't listen to the show, right? which seems to be most of the people we know. <laughs> but they're like, you, they're like, oh, how many episodes have you done? Are you still doing that podcast? <laughs> He's like, um, yeah, this is, we've just about to record like episode 69. And I said, have you run out of stuff yet? You know, <laughs> loads of stuff, isn't yeah, there? We're yeah. never going to run out. And as I say, just going through lists of uh, people who have been given blue plaques in South London by English Heritage, some names that I was familiar with, but never words have associated with South London. You know, names that i would heard of and feats that I've been aware of, but just were unaware of their oranges, and it had never cropped up in our investigation so far. Um, I picked out three favourites. The first one, um, and this really shocked me, Field Marshal Montgomery, the Viscount of Alamein. Monty. Monty, of course, who was born in the Oval in 1887, and uh, born at home as well in the Oval. Um, So, as you say, the whole point about people... People's births being marked in hospitals is not necessarily going to always be the case, particularly as you go earlier in history. Um, for people who don't know, Phil Gosh Montgomery, a uh, very famous soldier whose exploits more or less defined World War II. Um, he was present at Dunkirk and helped to orchestrate uh, the retreat from the continent. Then uh, takes command of... Uh, armoured warfare in North Africa and his victory at El Alamein turns the tide uh, in the desert offensive and you know helps to turn the tide of the war then he is involved in the planning and implementation of the D-Day landings so you know huge figure that's interesting as well when you look at it's almost like tube stations if you look at the proportion of blue plaques in North London and South London because English Heritage have this thing about lived here and stayed here and do tend to, because they have a, a rule about uh, have to be 100 years since the person was born, Yeah, it does tend to be dominated by uh, white men who eventually, no matter where they're born, will go and live in Pimlico because they're either going to work in government or finance, all these you know traditional institutions that are based on the north side of the river. Yeah, and that's where the money was, isn't it? So Absolutely, once you get yeah. the money, once you, you become powerful, in, uh... you have to go to the place of power. Yeah. So you got a blue plaque for Handel next door to a blue plaque for Jimi Hendrix. You know, <laughs> another interesting one, uh, a gentleman I'd never heard of, Sir Stanley Unwin, who's a publisher, who was born in Lewisham in 1884. In 1936, J.R.R. R. Tolkien sent The Hobbit to Stanley Unwin, who owned uh, a publishers. Uh, and asked him to consider it for publication. 
So Danny Unwin played his 10-year-old son, Rainer Unwin, which is a great name, mm-hmm. um, uh, three pence to read the manuscript and decide if it was worth publishing. The son came out with a positive report. <laughs> <laughs> um, they published it. Um, told, uh, Unwin then asked Tolkien if he had any other stuff. He went, well, there's a bigger version of this. Lord of the Rings uh, basically came out of the promptings uh, of a father of a ten-year-old that had a good eye for a book. Wow. Yeah. These people are not even getting blue packs from us, are they? They've no, already they, they've, they've already got yeah. yeah, English Heritage. English Heritage will cover all that. It's fine, isn't it? Um, what's my favourite one? Um, CB Fry, you may have heard of. I have not. Sports. You invented the CB radio. <laughs> they invented uh, Fry's Mint Cream. Um, either a sportsman, uh, all-rounder. There was a, a massive book about him. Did he? Uh, is it the the book is called? Um... It's called CB Fry. But, oh, that's I know. Was... I know who you're thinking of. It's the, the other, other all-rounder. Yeah. <laughs> CB Fry, not as prolific as the other guy, but still uh, a remarkable life and career. Um, described as a polymath, which I know is a word that you've got a lot of time for. All the maths. An outstanding sportsman, politician, diplomat, academic, teacher, writer, editor and publisher. Cool. Not bad, is it? Um, represented England at cricket and football. Uh, played in an FA Cup final for Southampton. Also played for Portsmouth, which is rare enough to be remarkable. Equaled the world record for the long jump at the time. Cool, that's pretty impressive. That's, that's the most bad, impressed I've yeah. been so far. But but also, if he just if he was, was a, a world record holder, you guys could. But he played in the FA Cup final mm. and captained uh, the England. This is while he's around the same time as like WG Grace, so he's no he's no uh, slouch to cricket either. Later on in his life, he uh, ends up working in the League of Nations, and while he's there, he's offered the throne of Albania. He turns it down. <laughs> right, the Albanians loved him. They were all over this guy. And then who was the, who was next in line? Normal. I think they actually gave it to an Albanian. <laughs> <laughs> um, well into his seventies, he claimed he was still able to form his party trick, which was leaping from a stationary position backwards onto a mantelpiece. God, that is impressive. That is impressive. Just that. Would I've have been got. Enough. Something I'd give someone a blue plaque for just that. There's an unfortunate uh, dalliance with not. Uh, Nazism, but there was a, obviously a thing in the late 30s um, where Hitler was seen as a powerful statesman and inspirational figure that a lot of people thought he was uh, worth talking to and you know, making plans with. Apparently, C.B. Fry was, was uh, very intrigued by the idea of the Hitler Youth and liked the idea of introducing. You know, health and fitness to young people. He saw it on, on that sort of thing. He was also apparently obsessed with trying to make Germany a, a test nation in cricket. So would repeatedly oh. visit Hitler and talk to Hitler, trying to convince him to introduce cricket into Germany. Didn't work. Hmm. Um, in the first couple of editions of autobiography, he talks about his uh, relationship with Hitler. In later editions, after the war, it's uh, mentioned less and less. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it seems like it's one of those ones where um, he quite liked the idea of uh, an organisation for youth that was based around... Yeah, it could have just as easily been the Scouts, but he went for the hit the youth as a model. I'm trying to think of a Third Reich, Third Innings. I'm I'm struggling. (laughs) It's almost like a joke, isn't it? I don't know enough about either to... (laughs) (laughs) So they're English heritage plaques. It does seem like 
the, the other set of plaques that intrigued me were the Suffolk Council ones. That's the one that, you know, it does seem remarkable that English Heritage didn't bother to give Charlie Chaplin a blue plaque. They left that to Suffolk Council. Yeah, what is the idea behind that? Were they just staggering it? Because you don't want to give all the blue plaques out. Like, we'll probably be giving out blue plaques every few months now, I think. Yeah, this does seem like a Where really it, good We don't want to give them all out, do we? No, think? no, no. But it does seem like a really good opportunity for us to be able to do... We were talking about, weren't we, in terms of... We do a Hall of Fame feature, and it tends to be someone like Chaplin or Bowie. Yeah, everyone in our Hall of Fame has uh, got a blue plaque, haven't they? Apart from Bowie. Yeah. But when he dies. Yeah. With Southwark Council as well, they, they also seem determined to recognise places as well as people. So there's almost to a greater degree. I mean, there's a, a blue plaque on County Hall for the Inner London Education Authority. Which, oh, right. Yeah. You're like, was it that good an education authority? <laughs> the ILEA. Yeah, yeah the ILEA. Um, yeah, they've also recognised things like the sailing of the Mayflower from Rotherive, Arrive. Um, Brunel's first project. Isambard Kingdom, Brunel's first major project. I saw a plaque recently in Brixton, a blue plaque, and it was put up by the Society for Black Lawyers. Yeah. Do you know the people who kind of opposed Tottenham fans using the word "yids"? Yeah. Kind of made themselves look a bit silly and really getting stuck into it. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. I can't remember it's for someone you've never heard of. Yeah. It's right at the end of Brixton Market, well, yeah. you know, Station Road, I think it is. But yeah, a few people that were given plaques by Southern Council as well. That I thought were interesting. Well, Edgar Kale, you know. Of course, yeah. yeah. Some of our own family members involved. Yeah. I mean, I signed a, f- um, a bit of paper that said, give it to Edgar Kale over Charles Dickens. Many times over, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> never, never stopped signing those bits of paper. I'd never heard of J.A.R. Newlands, who's a scientist born in West Square in 1837. But when I did, uh, I was shocked. He... Uh, did key work on the development of the periodic table of the elements. Oh, that's your favourite table. Well, it's a good table. But, uh, but and the thing once you go, lots of people worked on the periodic table of the elements over time. Primo Levi. Yeah, did some fine work on it. But what makes Newlands particularly significant is he was the first person to use atomic weight as a measure and a way to organise them, mm-hmm. which is now pretty much the default way to measure them. Um, he also... Uh, realised that there was relations between the different elements in terms of the atomic weight and, and their properties. So he could do things like predict the existence of elements that hadn't yet been discovered. So he had placed... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mathematically, almost. Yeah, almost, yeah. He just sort of realised the there electrons. had to be something there yeah. that we just hadn't discovered yet. So uh, germanium is his most famous uh, prediction. He sort of predicted where it would end up on the periodic table. Oh, right. Yeah. So, yeah, great work. Cool, we're covering a lot of ground today, Steve. Yeah, this is, this is what I love about it as well. Uh, it's sportsmen and scientists and statesmen. It's, you know, and uh, a cartographer up next. Phyllis Pearsall, who, again, exemplifies why I've got issues with the English heritage. Because uh, they are no women. <laughs> well, no, uh, this, is, this is Suffolk Council rather than English heritage. Phyllis Pearsall... Gave us the A to Z, the London A to Z. Wow. And the story... What that, she did the colouring and stuff. Well... Because it's ingrained in your mind, isn't it? Those well, yellow roads and stuff. The design of it, and particularly, well, particularly the typeface, which is Eric Gill typeface, um, is so iconic, isn't it? You know, yeah, that very sort of, uh, you know, evocative thing of the A to Z. 
the origin of the project itself is shrouded somewhat in myth and mystery, which is, I think, what intrigues me so much about Bunk it. that myth, Steve. <laughs> um, according to Pierce herself, uh, one evening she was getting ready to go to a dinner party. Uh, there was torrential rain outside and a power cut. Everything was pretty much shrouded in darkness. She managed to, after a long circuitous walk, find a way to where she was going to go. And as soon as she got to the party, everyone was just moaning about how hard it was to navigate London. Mm. So, according to her, the next day, she started mapping it. This involved walking... Wait, when's this? This is... Because the Ordnance Survey map would have already been done, and she didn't well, this is, write a map of London from well, scratch, this is, did she? This is the, you can't do it by walking around, Acu- can you? According to her thing, she walked the, um, the 3,000 miles of the 23,000 streets of London, waking up at 5 a.m. every day, and then staying up for 18 hours. I don't believe it. Can we do a thing, Steve, where we take down blue plaques where we don't agree with? Well, English Heritage don't believe her either, and a lot of people don't believe her. <laughs> oh, right. Because there were existing maps... Um, yeah, Ordnance Survey is like yeah. the thing, isn't it? Peter Barber, who's the head of maps at the British Library, yeah. thinks it's probably doubtful that's what mm. he did. Uh, he so, she's a tracer. He describes the Phyllis Poothal story as uh, complete rubbish. <laughs> uh, he said, uh, there's no evidence she did it, and if she did do it, she didn't need to. Um, he, he, By his reckoning, the first street index map of London was produced in 1623. Yeah. So by this point, uh, what people think was more likely ha- to have happened is that she added to existing street maps London with the the outer areas that have grown since then and created the most comprehensive map of London, but did it using existing maps? Maps on maps on maps. <laughs> so Southwark is voted by the people, isn't it? The people have spoken. Yeah, the people uh, clearly love the story. Yeah, and that's fine. And and as I say, uh, just the fact that such a, an iconic piece of you know, cultural history was created by someone. Yeah, yeah, well, it and, is iconic, and, regardless yeah. of um, and also the lies in her. Well, in her defence, if we're going to call her uh, a liar, I'm still not sure. I still like to think she uh, walked uh, three thousand. Um, when when she died in her will, she left the company in trust. To make sure that all her employees would be able to keep their jobs, no one would be allowed to buy the company and sackle and just take the uh, images and the iconography away. Well, that's good, isn't yeah. it? So, um, yeah. So, I, th- I think Phyllis Pierce will give her a blue flag. And if English Heritage won't, and they won't because they do want evidence, then Southern Council <laughs> should. And have. <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, an artist, has a blue plaque in Annerley. Because it was the house he stayed in as he designed and built... The, the Crystal dinosaurs. Palace. Dinosaurs, yeah. Oh, dinosaurs, yeah. Yeah, the dinosaurs at Crystal Palace. Um, Whereabouts is How far is it from here, Steve? Oh, it'd be about sort of, a 10-minute walk. Yeah. We're not going to do it now. It's, uh, <laughs> it's so dark outside. <laughs> Phyllis Pierce won't be able to find our way to a dinner party, as that old saying goes. Um, yeah, he is more most famous at that. But also... I. Only reading about the guy, discovered that he was the first man to assemble and mount a dinosaur skeleton. Which, again, is such a right. common vision now, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it defines every natural history museum in the world. Um, he did that in Philadelphia, unfortunately. It was a hadrosaurus that he put together. But, um, yeah, it's nice that this guy who 
again, created such an iconic vision, didn't he? You know, that's how we... Yeah. When you think about dinosaurs now... Um, you know, so if he'd have like, flipped it around, you know what I mean? Used the backbone as like a kind of some kind of horn. Well, there, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, Questions about his actual. Oh, come on, Steve! In, in the same if way, if you as, just pick like the least accurate blue facts you can find, the um, but no, uh, these are these are wonderful things, aren't they? Yeah, they just you know don't happen to necessarily be as accurate or as true as you might like. In the same way, the Chris Pines dinosaurs, you know, have largely been discredited in terms of particularly coloration, because you know how how would he have known? Obviously, you know, you're talking about a hundred years of paleontology that's caught up and developed. Steve, we didn't have dinosaurs 100 years ago, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, some, some wonderful discoveries from uh, the blue plaques in South London. Lose this whole idea that you wait till someone dies before you give them a blue plaque. Blue plaques now for people who are doing wonderful things now. Mm. As Kanye West said, if you admire someone, you should tell them people never get the flowers but they can still smell them. Exactly. That's why, even though there are hundreds of blue plaque schemes, this is the one, South London hard plaques. <laughs> Having said that, <laughs> our first nomination is for someone who's dead. But she didn't die as she early li- as she might have done. Oh, yeah, is that Also, uh, she literally lives on, doesn't she? Mary Wade. Not literally. Not literally. <laughs> Mary Wade was born in Southwark in 1777. Very poor childhood. Spent a day sweeping the streets of London as a means of begging. In 1788, she's 11 years old and with another friend steals some clothes off a girl who's collecting water. The two girls sell a frock that they've stolen as part of their loot to a pawnbroker they're informed on by another girl um her house is searched and they find another piece of clothing from the theft so essentially an 11 year old girl has stolen some clothes and is found guilty of the crime uh she's sentenced to death yeah, it's was, remarkable. I was it? I was so shocked reading it. I mean, I know sort of the world was a more even more bar- barbaric place, you know, yeah. in the 18th century. But that a child living in poverty stole yeah. some clothes and was sentenced to death. Yeah, there's no violence. There's no violence. There's no. No, it's she unbelievable. She stole a frock and sold it but to like, a pawnbroker. And they're like, we have to we have to hang you by the neck until you're dead. It really brought me down, man. Thinking of like just kids being. Yeah. Executed. Well, and this is the thing. Is this what it was going on? Yeah. Paint the picture of 18th century Britain for me, Steve. It's filthy. Yeah. Because there's no sewage systems. Uh, the streets are literally uh, just running. It's worse than now, isn't it? waste. Slightly. I mean, you know, there were fewer chicken shops, so a lot of people would have loved yeah. it. <laughs> that's, the big, that's the big social ill mm. of nowadays, of course. The next, it's, it's, it's particularly frustrating as well because the reason she isn't hung I found just as depressing, if that doesn't sound, you know, bizarre. On the 11th of March, 1789, King George III is proclaimed... Don't just read out the Wikipedia entry thing. <laughs> well, uh... King George went mental, <laughs> didn't he? Yeah, well, I was trying to, well, also, you know, I'm trying to be... The madness deli- of... I'm trying to be delicate around uh, issues of mental health. 
I don't know, man. He's you're in, not. You're just. He's in charge of a country that's uh, executing children. Yeah, it's too. true. Yeah, basically, uh, King George III suffered from Porfirio throughout his life. At one point, I don't know what they're basing it on because, as far as I understand, there isn't a cure for it. He's declared cured, and as a celebration of this cure of a mental condition, um, the women that are on death row have their death sentences commuted to penal transportation to Australia. Yeah, so, what is the thought process, man? Great. That well, obviously, maybe there's some people killed. involved who are just like, how can we get these people not killed? Yeah, yeah. But it just seems like, you know, these people survived on the whim of... She's been in prison for three months, this child. Yeah, 11-year-old child who, you know, you're not going to get hung because this ridiculous institution has decided that this guy's fine. It's just horrible, isn't it? It just brings mm. home uh, the ridiculousness of that criminal justice system, the idea of a monarchy, and the idea of you mm. living and dying by the whims and the, the health, or the perceived whims and health, of these random people. Just bizarre. But, you know, she survives, is shipped over to Australia. The journey takes 11 months. 11 months? Yeah. It's well, they go the wrong way. <laughs> um, well, it's all it's wind power, isn't it? And they, there's various stops on the way to ca- take supplies. She scenic route. Well, she she. Uh, it sounds ridiculous, but the people on that particular ship got off quite lightly. Um, her ship basically went between what's known as uh, the first and second passage. The first pack, passage was, was generally fine. She was like essentially the last to go on that and the first to go on the next one. The three ships that followed were basically filled with malnourished and maltreated people that were just starved and beaten for the duration of the journey. Most of them didn't survive. She was the youngest person who went... Youngest person on that particular uh, ship. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But she, yeah, she survives, gets to Australia, eventually gains her freedom, goes on to survive, to see to see four other generations of her family alive. She had five generations of her family during her own lifetime, which seems remarkable. Yeah, I mean, there were people knocking out kids really young. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. You know, the terrible things that probably happened, man. Don't bear thinking about that. Yeah, so five generations and 300 descendants in her own lifetime. Um, and, obviously, at that key point in Australian history... Today, her descendants can be traced to the tens of thousands, including Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe? No, I've just given you an Australian person. Is he born in New, New Zealand? Zealand? Yeah. No, but I think his parents are Australian. Okay. Yeah. Um, Nick Cave. Are you just naming Australians? Or are you, yeah, are you I'm hoping that at one point I'll be right. Well, I've got Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia. Who? What I found fascinating about this was the idea that. If you look at that story and the history of the family that follows, you know, obviously leaving aside the horrific implications of empire on Australia, particularly the Aboriginal people, there's something to be said about a system whereby a family can go from definitely being a convict and shipped to another country and within X number of generations that convict's descendants can become Prime Minister of that country. While at the same time, in this country, we've still got a Prime Minister 
that would be of the same social class and standing as the Prime Minister in the 18th century. Mm. So essentially, as a country, we've gone nowhere in terms of uh, where our leaders are coming from. Well, yeah, you say that. Coming up, Steve, next blue plaque. Better. Yeah. But, I mean, we're talking about David Cameron. Most people are better, aren't it? Do you know the address? No. So where's the blue plaque going to go? <laughs> uh, where would be a good place? <laughs> where would be a good place? You have to put it where she's born. Or lived, Steve. Oh, uh, she was christened in... Uh, St. Olaf's. Yeah. Olaf's. Yeah. Because, well, she's not, you know, you're not getting... Uh, birth certificates I feel like you there. might have missed the point of the blue plaque scheme Steve <laughs> yeah I forgot about the uh, importance of specific locations the Southern News at the moment I believe are sort of involved in uh, getting blue plaques up it's blue plaque season apparently so maybe tweet Mary Ann Wade to Mary Wade I've got there's an Anne there's a middle is name, it? Isn't it? Oh, right. yeah so maybe tweet Mary Wade not at Mary Wade like she's not on Twitter <laughs> um, at Southwark underscore news apparently and... Justin Bieber would like to think <laughs> would yeah. be a believer. <laughs> she probably would. They'll have to, Southwark News will work out where to put a plaque, wouldn't they? When we were putting up this next blue plaque on Cold Harbour Lane, the current occupants did come out and uh, ask us what exactly we were doing. It's for... It's for John Major, Prime Minister of Britain from 1990 to 1997. Or should I say the Right Honourable Sir John Major, K-G-C-H-A-C-I-B? Don't say that. No, we don't recognise any of those things, do we, no. Steve? Yeah, I think it's probably a typo. Like, he's Right Honourable, I'm not. Or you're well honourable. On the plaque, it says Britain's least hated Prime Minister of our lifetimes. Really, it kind of means my lifetime. Because arguably you could say Jim Callaghan was hated less, but maybe not, though, actually. I think uh, afterwards we decided that in living memory might be a better way to phrase it. But certainly of recent years. Yeah, obviously Blair with all the blood on his hands from Iraq and the fact that he kind of took the Labour Party away from us, Steve. And John Major was preceded by Margaret Thatcher, who, I don't know if anyone listening has heard of her, was uh, <laughs> quite a significant figure in politics yeah. in the 80s. I feel, Steve, in the wake of uh, Thatcher's death, we kind of do need to just say a couple of things. Like, there were some parties in Brixton the night that she died. One big party, I think. <laughs> some parties, yeah. <laughs> there was a party. Every other house. Like, well done, everyone who turned up, you know. I think it's important to say, Steve, that that's absolutely fine. Have a party. It was interesting, I think, the fallout of that was some people going, this is right and this is wrong. It's significant to look at where these parties took place and why they took place. It, the, the parties didn't take place everywhere. They weren't universal. They weren't happening in Berkshire. They weren't happening in Kingston. They were happening in Glasgow. They were happening in Liverpool. They were happening in Brixton. They were happening in places that have a history of the people who live in those places being unhappy with their general treatment by the government and society, their specific treatment by the police and the authorities. These things don't happen in a vacuum. Brixton wasn't chosen because it's got excellent transport links. No one was sort of going, <laughs> oh, Windrush Square, what a wonderful place to gather people. <laughs> That'd be there's, convenient. There's awnings mm. under the cinema in case it rains. That's not what people are thinking. These things do not occur out of nowhere. They happened 
in these specific places because of uh, specific things that have happened over the years that have caused people to feel resentment against people. It's died down now a bit, but in the immediate aftermath of her death, I think it hit home more than any event probably in my life where you've really been it's been forced home this the, the fact that there's a them and us absolutely people will just like I said like on Twitter or any social media thing you know Facebook someone removed me from their friends because I made a comment about going down to Brixton to have a party there seemed to be a lot as well of this uh, whatever you thought of her politics right let's move on to like saying how great she was and stuff like just as if we can sort of sweep that aside you know communities were destroyed and people's lives were massively affected by the actions of Thatcher and the fact that such a huge percentage of the population were you know not necessarily glory in her death but certainly it was a time when people were remembering how terrible things were yeah the fact that it was such a huge percentage maybe the kind of rest of the people who seemed to think she was so great like maybe they want to maybe have a think about why that would be also um a, a lot of sort of default responses are things like um you know, it's important to remember that she's got a family and like, yeah, she's got a couple of scummy kids yeah, that have done vile, some vile. terrible things in their lives as well. Yeah. So the idea that I'm supposed to... Uh, There's a know, section right on Thatcher's Wikipedia page that says arms. And I presumed <laughs> it was relating to her son who's an arms dealer or was an arms dealer. It's not. It's about some stupid coat of arms nonsense. But like, just quickly, Steve, if we can just quickly give a quick roundup of Thatcher, yeah? Yeah. Because I think it's important for people to kind of realise that you get this kind of thing like with people, like to people's about miners and milk, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, like as you know, mining, like like it's some kind of joke about like kind yeah. of coal mining, like it was a dying industry anyway. Yeah. It had to go, and she took people's milk and all that was a bit silly, but like it goes so much further than that. Like yeah, they're they're symptomatic, they're typical of her actions, which were designed to work against the poorest. Uh, working class people in the country yeah poll tax yeah you know say like the right to buy where people are just so kind of the fact that people got to buy their own council house they become so short-sighted and can't see the massive flaws in the system of selling off council housing obviously the subsequent labor government didn't um arrest the decline and like they've got a lot to answer for too but the idea of living in a council house you know buying it so you could then sell it like it becomes defeats the entire purpose. Privatization. I believe a large part of our um, electricity supply is owned by France now. So well done. You know, yeah, you get, these, you get the uh, Tories that talk about the, the nation state and how proud they are to be British. And you're like, well, why are you selling uh, electricity to France? Why don't you keep hold of that? Do you want to say anything about Mandela, Steve, or Pinochet? Yeah, that's, I think that's all you need to say, isn't it? She, she didn't like Nelson Mandela, considered him a terrorist and the ANC a terrorist organisation, but she loved Augustin Pinochet, who was uh, a horrific dictator who killed his own people. So, you know, judging by their friends, isn't it? Who do you like and who don't? I don't like Nelson Mandela. I think he's a bit of a... He's a terrorist. Man. Yeah, he's he's an awful man. Well, but she was all right with the uh, guy who was uh, in charge of apartheid South Africa, though, wasn't she? Oh, the clerk, yeah, yeah. Big, big friends. Yeah, she... Um, uh, I think there's footage or photos of her arm in arm with Pinochet when she gave him uh, shelter when he was uh, in Britain, avoiding the charges of uh, crimes against humanity in his own country. So, you come, know. In, come in, she said. I'll give you shelter from the storm. There was that video uh, recently 
of uh, in 1988. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is not in like the 50s or whatever. This is not in a time when they were like hanging kids for stealing coats, like saying uh, you know children are being taught they have the inalienable, inalienable right to be gay. Yeah. Like literally standing there and saying people don't have the right to be gay. At um, Conservative Party conference, and I believe that particular phrase got a massive gets cheer, round of applause, because that's exactly what these scumbags want to hear, isn't it? So you know, if you were kind of poor or gay or a black South African, like all you kind of or mean, a, a black South Londoner, yeah, you know, and if you buy the Sun or the Daily Mail, you really need to take a good look at yourself. Like this is that's not a joke, and I'm not saying that flippantly. If you think it's okay to buy those publications, like I'd rather you just turned off to be honest. <laughs> you get these people who support her and they talk about, you know, oh, you know, if only other people would work so hard, you know. It's a woman who died with sixty-five million pounds, right? And they can't and like uh, you know, you've got half the cabinet grew up in mansions. But they can't people can't see we can't all have sixty five million pounds. <laughs> they did not see that this is not sustainable. But you know, uh, we can't even start on the fact that we had to pay for her funeral. I mean that is just Beyond irony, you know. Yeah. But we're not talking about Facho, who lived in Dulwich f- temporarily. There's no blue plaques for her in hell. <laughs> <laughs> John Major, Steve. You know, being the head of the Conservative Party is a bad thing. But with John Major, I think you get the impression that he's not trying to crush the working classes. He just kind of... He has a difference of opinion to us economically <laughs> do you know what I mean by no, that you, yeah, you like get... when I say like David Cameron obviously hates the poor yeah. and will happily see disabled people die yeah. you know to save money or any working class people you the know, same closing, with Thatcher closing they... hospitals and uh, fire stations in working class areas to make sure that you know, those people have less chance of surviving than uh, him and his mates essentially but not so with Major do you think that's fair not so I mean you can't I'm not. I'm he's not. A, he's a Tory. He's a Tory. Yeah. So he's he's clearly wrong. But as you say, breaking news on top on the hard part. Major um, Tory. But he's yeah, certainly not as big a scumbag as many of the people around him at the time. His dad was in music hall, wasn't he? He was, yeah. And uh, I think he had a gardening business or something. But he went broke. Yeah, gardening business. Yeah. And that's how they ended up on Cold Harbour Lane because <laughs> they didn't have any money. Yeah, 1955. John Major's 12 years old and the family moves to Cold Harbour Lane in Brixton where we erected our plaque to John Major. Yeah, around the corner on Burton Road they lived afterwards. Yeah, moved there in 1959. There's a great video on YouTube. Um, it's like a John Major day in the life type thing and he's in a cab going around having a look at uh, the places he used to go in Brixton. You know, he goes to Brixton Market he goes to his to two houses he lives, and he seems like he seems proud to have humble roots, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah. And like we were saying with um, Cameron, John Major's life in politics starts in Brixton. Essentially, he would make speeches in Brixton Market, standing on top of a soapbox. It's a nice image, isn't it? Scandal. <laughs> There's a lot of. Uh, Stories about him not getting a job as a bus conductor because he failed the maths test and obviously becoming Chancellor of Sheffield. The reality is he 
passed all the exams to get a job as bus conductor, but wasn't tall enough. But you should mm. imagine you'd sort out before you make someone do loads of exams, wouldn't it? Because <laughs> that's the thing you can definitely find <laughs> out. You need exams to assess relative worth. But height's absolute, isn't it? <laughs> what do they think was going to happen? He was going to do like a series of tests, and they go, and he's grown four inches. So he became a councillor at Lambeth instead. He did. Apparently did a lot of good work with social housing. Yeah. He was responsible for the building of several council estates. But it weren't long, really, before he went from South London, is it? During his time... Um, as Prime Minister, Major wasn't averse to jumping back on the soapbox to evoke his working class roots and local boy done good aesthetic. They also used, um, in the 1992 election campaign, a poster with the slogan, What does the Conservative Party offer a working class kid for Brixton? made him Prime Minister hmm. forgetting that that's not how Prime Ministers are made isn't it there's a vote and that's yeah. what makes Prime Ministers so yeah you've got politics wrong there but we'll allow that why didn't they just do like have a picture of him and you know where they have like those robes like with a kind of uh, with like the gold and stuff and just yeah. have we major <laughs> that would be much better wouldn't it you should be working with Sarchi and Sarchi I should be shouldn't I yeah we've talked about people's attitudes towards John Major being softer Mm. Yeah, but we can put numbers on this as well. Um, John Major has recorded the highest popular vote by a political party in a general election. So, you know, he's not a hateful man, Steve. He's not. He's not. But and you know, his finest hour, of course, uh, while interviewed by Michael Brunson, um, and when he thought the microphone was switched off. Uh, Michael Brunson asked why John Major didn't just fire. There were people basically conspiring against him because obviously uh, he was despised. As this, and this is why I don't understand why people from uh, working class backgrounds and ethnic minorities and from gay and lesbian backgrounds are going into Tory, but they hate you. They yeah. hate you. They don't, they're not they're your not friends. You, yeah. They hate you. It's not someone was tweeting about UKIP today. They're going like, they're not about you, the working man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, they're, they're just not trying to friends. play on your xenophobia fears. and yeah, yeah. idiocy. Fears, uh, fears yeah. Ignorance. I'm scared of hair shops. <laughs> any shop where black people go in and like, there's nothing on sale for me, I'm terrified of. <laughs> not me, I mean, that's a UKIP person. Stinks, stinks of curry. What, the hair shop? Yeah. <laughs> Major knows that people are conspiring to kick him out of uh, Downing Street. So Brunson says, why don't you just sack him? And, uh, John Major said, you've got to look at it from my perspective. I'm Prime Minister with a majority of 18. Where do you think this poison's coming from? The dispossessed and never possessed. Do we want three more of the bastards out there? Hmm. Which is nice for two reasons. Uh, one, not afraid to call other Tories bastards. And two, three, put a specific number on it. So everyone was like, right, so it's Redwood. <laughs> and straight away everyone knew exactly who he was talking about. So, you know, it's nice, nice uh, divisions in the Tory party. It always makes me smile. Hmm. See, so, yeah, I think, you know, give him a blue plaque for being um, a Tory that, you know, you don't have to despise. That's, a, that's an honour. Having said that, we did put it up, in, kind of ironically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The irony was lost somewhat on the occupants of the house. It was, yeah, they were doing, they were doing some massive renovations, I think, because they were taking, carrying out, like, radiators and stuff, yeah. weren't they? Anything that John Major might have touched. And uh, some lady came over and said, like, we've... <laughs> 
We've told them we don't want a blue placard. I think she said we told you. I think she thought we were English heritage. She didn't think she trying was. To, trying to put up like a gorilla blue plaque. And uh, she was like, yeah, we... Uh, we don't we, like him. We don't like said. him. And you, you, you sort of quite gently went, yes, we are we're being ironic, really. You, you, yeah. sort of like, you don't want to be sort of like going, this is a joke. I'm not sure she believed us, though. I'm pretty sure she went away thinking we were a couple of young conservatives. She might have thought you were a young conservative... I'm just a conservative. <laughs> Our final blue plaque this time round, which again you can see the photos of on southlondonhardcore.com, is going up in Greenwich. It's next to another blue plaque, one for Cecil Day Lewis. This one is for his son, the first man to win three Best Actor Oscars, Daniel Day Lewis. Maybe drop in a Daniel Day Lewis bit, isn't it? I drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. <laughs> I drink it up. <laughs> <laughs> or just that <laughs> <laughs> it's good isn't he Danny Day Lewis brilliant quite yeah. good at films and again um, to place it in context and explain why we think it's important to give him a Southland hardcore plaque to emphasise he is hardcore he is A there's no doubt the guy's hardcore um, but also it is about this particular place helping to shape him into the man that the public know. Uh, Danny Day-Lewis, live, living in Greenwich, was growing up... Grew up there, basically, didn't he? Yeah, grew Moved up there. in when he was two, but his birthplace yeah. is listed as Greenwich. Yeah. So pres- presumably they lived around the corner or whatever yeah. a couple of years before. But, yeah, gr- uh, growing up there... He said himself, growing up there as someone who had Jewish ancestry and was posh, meant that he became the target for local bullies. So his first acting was him learning the accent, learning the mannerisms of the people around him to allow himself to just fall into the background so that he doesn't become a target anymore. He's known for being a method actor. Yeah, and the stories that you love in it. Yeah, we'll yeah we'll come to some of the incredible like preparation he's done for roles. I'm sure if he was listening, yeah, which he isn't, right? But I'm sure he wouldn't want us to dwell on that. No, exactly. Yeah, but um, well, we're going to. We are because it's our show, and if he wants it to be another show, <laughs> then and I'm talking to you, Daniel Day Lewis. You start yeah. your own bloody. You're podcast. welcome on the show anytime, Daniel. Jack Mr. doesn't speak for both, Mister Day Lewis. <laughs> But we will be talking about the performances and the films as well. So it's, you know, we're not just talking about, oh, so Daniel, is it true that you once cobbled yeah, shoes, yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How many what else did you would break I cobble? While you were, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Apples. Streets. I mean, there's loads of options. But he sort of downplays the whole method thing, obviously. Um, well, I'm actually the sort of thing where if that's how you do it, then that's how it's done, and it's not. Yeah, I mean, uh, he said it's logical, yeah. so logic, and he said it's his pleasure. Yeah, and um, he was talking about staying in character on set, and he said um, you're not discovering anything when you're off having tea with the grips. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whereas if you're in character in between those, you yeah. know, moments. Uh, no, it's one of those things where it makes much more sense to me than people who think they can switch it on and off. I don't understand how you can. I, you know, I can't act, I can't do accents, but I would imagine that the more you do it and, you know, the more you, as you say, the more you examine the experience while placing that filter on things, you are going to 
grow into the character. It just seems, yeah, perfectly sensible. You can't act and you can't do accents, Steve, but there is obviously one major thing you have in common with Daniel Day-Lewis. Cobblers. <laughs> Both got Irish passports, didn't you? Yes, yeah. And he, he um, lives over there a lot of the time as well, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, mostly, yeah. He said he only comes here to visit now. He said it, the reason he's got an Irish... You know, he's part Latvian and grew up in England. He, he describes himself as English, but he says yeah. the reason he has an Irish passport is to readjust the balance, given uh, Britain's role in Ireland's history. Is that similar with you, isn't it? It's a similar thing to me, yeah, yeah. Have you seen his acceptance speech for the 2008 BAFTA for There Will Be Blood? No, I don't think I have. That's oh, great. He just He's doing Gaelic. <laughs> he just does this list. He goes like, you know, Victor Infant School, Sherrington Primary School in Charlton, Greenwich Park, Blackheath, the streets of Deptford, Lewisham, Newcross, Bob Sites, the Isle of Dogs, skip that. The shadow <laughs> the shadowy laneways of the South East London docks, the terraces of Millwall football grounds. Those were the playgrounds of my early life. It nice. just name drops everything, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. So we won't talk about every single film he's done. No. And obviously the later his career goes on, the bigger the gaps are. Like, he's known for not acting so much. He said he's got a slow fall rhythm, which I think is, uh, <laughs> I quite like. Yeah, 1985, My Beautiful Laundrette. First real major thing, isn't it? And echoing our recent Bowie episode, another Hanif Qureshi originated story. Yeah. Uh, from Bromley, isn't he? Yep. I mean, it's a. F- Have you seen the film? Years ago, yeah, yeah, on Channel Four. So. You know, it's all it's all shot in South London. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's, it's the the most South London thing he's ever done, isn't it? I don't think it's aged particularly well. A bit like his haircut in the film, <laughs> half half blonde. And it's quite. I mean, you know, when people talk about it, they talk about it sort of exploring politics and social issues, but it's quite broad, isn't it, in terms of its approach? Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe the, the book was more nuanced. He's really good in the unbearable lightness of being. I've never seen that actually. I've read the book. Yeah, he plays. Um, he does everything in a Czech accent, but it's you know funny. He's like this brooding Lafaria. Well, that was was that his the first sort of immersive thing he did. That was he learnt Czech and stayed. Oh, with, did he? I think I think that was the first sort of film where he sort of yeah, as I say, learnt Czech and kept the accent up throughout filming while uh, on an Austrian. But the role that really sent him over the top. Uh, it's still maybe what he's well, maybe not now what he's most known for, but it's his the first role he wins an Oscar for, Christy Brown, My Left Foot. Yeah, it's a remarkable performance. That. Yeah, he plays uh, Christy Brown, who's got cerebral palsy, can as the title suggests, he can only really use his left foot. Yeah, same thing as any sort of motor control over. And that was the first sort of famous example of his complete immersion in character. He stayed in a wheelchair and was carried on an offset um, was sort of and you know he had people working on the film just cursing him where he's in a wheelchair being lifted over cables and wires but he said that was important to inform the character he wanted to go through what Christy Brown had gone through which involves you know the idea that people have to you're dependent on other people and you're dependent on needing the help of others just to be able to do what we take for granted and just sort of moving around the space. It does inform the performance. Well, he won an Oscar, so he clearly did he that right, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an incredible performance. I mean, he don't break for a second. It's not no. that he's going to look at the camera or something, but do you know what I mean? Like No little winks seamless. or anything, yeah. So, <laughs> I'm only pretending. I'm guessing there's no blooper reel, Steve. 
<laughs> when I was at school, we had uh, an assembly one day, and the speaker at the assembly was a man in a wheelchair. So me and a few other kids, we say, I say kids, we were sort of 15, 16, so we're um, old enough and you know, physically capable to lift a man in a wheelchair up a set of stairs, which is what we had to do, because uh, the school building was quite old and the man was in a wheelchair and needed to get upstairs to where um, we were having the assembly, which, you know, with hindsight was up a set of stairs. It seems odd to sort of do the assembly somewhere where there isn't stairs. So, um, yeah, we carried a guy upstairs in his wheelchair and uh, sit down, sweating and wheezing. But, you know, thinking, you know, done a good deed. It's all right. Don't mind helping. Um, and he starts his talk by standing up and revealing <laughs> that he could always stand up. And uh, his point was <laughs> about perception and how we treat people based on what we think we know. And my point was, <laughs> does that mean that everyone in a wheelchair is faking? <laughs> can I just assume that everyone in a wheelchair can, can walk? Uh, and it's just one elaborate... <laughs> uh, you know, everyone else seemed a bit sort of like, oh, right, this is... The three of us were sort of like, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely I'm not joke. helping anyone else ever again. <laughs> I'm done with people at this point. Uh, it was a remarkable uh, attempt at a lesson from uh, the school there. So, yeah, I've got some sympathy for the runners on uh, the film, but, you know... Don't go lose one Oscar for this. That bloke, you know, he's just doing terrible inspirational speeches all over the place, isn't he? 92, another big film, The Last of the Mohicans. Spent five months being a hunter-gatherer, essentially. I was going to say camping, but your take on it is probably better, isn't it? I think it was like that, man. No, he it was. He was. Fishing he was. Yeah, and stuff. No, when I say camping, he's not out there with, like, a little stove and uh, nice foil-lined paperback. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel it really comes across in this though I think it was not a waste of time but you know it's a kind of fairly standard Hollywood film it's quite glossy isn't it it is and that's the thing with my left foot it's an unvarnished look at this man's experience and individual situation with Last of the Mohicans it's a glossy sort of period action film yeah if you compare it to Apocalypto or The New World which have come out, sort of, they both came out about a decade afterwards. Like, if you'd have put that performance into those films, you'd be like, brilliant, but it just... Gets a bit lost. It, it does get lost, yeah. yeah. It doesn't... You know, if he'd have not done any of that, I don't think the film would have suffered. Yeah. The following year, he makes another film with Jim Sheridan, who made My Left Foot, In the Name of the Father, or the title in the original language is In the Name of the Father. <laughs> Uh, just quickly. Too, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> so he plays an Irishman in this, full on. I was going to ask what the big uh, idea is, because that's obviously the next obvious thing to do. Yeah, so the true story of a group of Irishmen that are arrested, charged and found guilty of terrorism offences. And we're told uh, at the time that uh, judge made a point of saying, if I could give you the death penalty, I would. Fortunately, the death penalty had been abolished by this point, so you're not relying on um, a lunatic king to calm down <laughs> to get it commuted. Um, instead, they just go to prison until it's found out they're innocent and they're released rather than you having the 
you know, awkwardness of trying to... Yeah, and how many years posthumous, later was that? Uh, well, you're still better than you're dead and you're getting posthumous, uh, yeah, you know. still there. Yeah, outrageous, outrageous. The film though, Steve. You've seen the film, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Very good. Yeah, I liked it a lot. It's, you know, similar to um, Last Time Mohicans being followed by Apocalypto and New World. In Name of Fire was very good, but once you've seen Hunger, that's oh, pretty boy. much yeah. the... It becomes the sort of definitive film of... What transcends it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it, again, it's the sort of thing where, you know, putting Daniel Day-Lewis's level of performance into a film, the general quality of Hunger would elevate everything. But, you know, it's still a remarkable film. And his performance is brilliant. I haven't seen The Crucible, but apparently he spent weeks uh, working in planting fields using 17th century tools. That's followed by The Boxer, his third film with Jim Sheridan, where he spent two years training for it. Training to be a boxer, right? Before he'd even made, before he'd, um, before he'd even agreed to the film. He trained with uh, Barry McGuigan, who went on record as saying uh, if he wanted to, he could box professionally and I reckon would probably have a good shot at a world title. Which sounds, it sort of sounds like the sort of thing sort of standard filmmaking hype. You know, signs, oh, yeah, he was, like, we were playing around with uh, the basketball, and, like, he, you know, he could, he could do something, go like the goal, he could do something, he could do something. But with Daniel Day-Lewis, he's so, he, his level of performance is so intense, he probably would. Yeah, focus, man. Yeah, he probably would be an excellent boxer. But, um, yeah, the, when Barry McGuigan said it, I was like, uh, yeah, you, you're sort of obliged to say that if you train someone for a mm. film. But um, you sort of go, yeah, no, maybe. I, I wouldn't fight Daniel Day-Lewis. No. Have you ever seen um, the Paul F. Tompkins uh, skits about Daniel Day-Lewis? I'll put it up on the website. It's great. So this is when you get his first big gap, isn't it? There's five years between The Boxer and Gangs of New York. Yeah, I mean, he never declared it, but I think everyone just assumed he'd retired from acting. That was the idea, wasn't he? He'd, like, gone off the grid and wasn't going to act again. And Scorsese made pilgrimages to Italy, where he was apprenticed to a shoemaker, to try and convince him to come back to do Gangs of New York. Yeah, and gives him an incredible role, uh, Bill the Butcher. And it's well, Scorsese gave... as well. I mean, he worked with Scorsese a couple of years earlier in, well, nine years earlier, in The Age of Innocence, which is a very slow, kind of nuanced film. But I don't particularly like it. I think it's one of Scorsese's better films. But, you know, Dave Lewis is obviously good in it. But Gangson, you know, if you're going to come out of retirement, come out of retirement for Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Scorsese's not here, though, isn't it? He gives him uh, a role that means... It's meaty, isn't it? It means he's got to spend uh, six months on a new trade, in it? So that's, that's, the, that's the... Forget about the script. Forget about the budget. Day day looks like, and what's the guy do? He's a butcher. Right, well, I'm going to have to take six months to learn how to be a butcher. You don't. We can pretend. You say that, but I better just go and skin a pig. Yeah. It's not brilliant, though, is it? It's not. It's, um, there is some great stuff in it. I mean, yeah. it's got some I was so excited great elements. about the idea of it. And it opens so well with that scene in the snow. That yeah. kind of brutal fight yeah, scene, yeah. man. I haven't seen it since the cinema, actually, but I remember him, him being incredible in it. You'd never listen to it and think he's from South London. Yeah, he is fantastic in it. But as a 
as a piece. It's yeah, not, the Cameron Diaz character is no good. There's too, too voice long, over that's rubbish. bit glossy in places. Yeah. And there's some dodgy accents in it, isn't there? But it's almost redeemed by uh, another brilliant Daniel Day-Lewis story where he develops pneumonia during filming. Oh, right. Yeah, and uh, refuses to wear a proper coat because he wouldn't have had that coat at the time. Also refuses to uh, seek medical help because that medical help wouldn't have been available at the time. So, uh, um, But it gets yeah. to the point where people are like, you're going to die, and he's yeah. like, okay. And that's when Daniel Day-Lewis died. So thanks for listening. <laughs> no, he didn't die, Steve. And... Right, he made a film called The Battle of Jack and Rose, which I haven't seen. But 2007, he makes one of the greatest films ever made. One of the great performances. The best film of the decade, in my opinion. There Will Be Blood. Yeah, it's just pure cinema, isn't it? Such it a is. remarkable film. Just immersive and compelling. And it is a thing where... There's so many of these films where he, as a central character, and as a central actor is and you know this is true of this film as well he is very much the centre of the film but he's so ably supported by everyone else isn't it yeah there's no bad performances it's just and like you know we've talked about other films where uh, the production design's a bit off it's a bit glossy in places it's a bit off in terms of tone this is just it's perfect flawless filmmaking isn't it you know the sound production the soundtrack. Yeah, Johnny Greenwood. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, the opening scene. It's one, yeah. one of uh, the greatest opening scenes ever. You're just like transfixed. Yeah, the whole kind of, the way that Paul Thomas Anderson tells the story, like the way kind of these kind of build up of images that kind of yeah. tell a story over a few years. He does the same thing again, probably even, I don't think it's a better film than Master, but... He does it to sort of a more in a more extreme way, I think. Yeah. Like kind of juxtaposition of these kind of scenettes almost. I mean, it's just an absolute masterpiece, and Daniel Day Lewis is central to that. And I think that and the film he, he won the Oscar for that, and he won an Oscar a couple of months ago as well. Lincoln brought Abraham Lincoln to life. I thought. Yeah. You know, we could maybe talk about Lincoln in a second about the film. But I don't, you know, there's no dispute in his performance. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you've seen photos of Lincoln or whatever, but, you know, the voice he gives him, the mannerisms, so much of that comes out of his head. And he, uh, he read, there's talk that he read a hundred books about Lincoln. Yeah. Which sounds like a conservative estimate to me. Because the thing is, in, in all hundred of those books, arguably the only thing you're going to get is uh, Big Hat. <laughs> that's the one for your take. The one who says, yeah. go, big hat, beard. He had a little bit of a high voice. I saw an interview of him saying, because uh, he, he plays him like a kind of old version of young Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of these, you know, he works with um, the prosthetics person over a period yeah. of time. And it is one of these things where his method of working clearly informs the character doesn't it he's able to create someone like that Liam Neeson was originally cast and pulled out possibly because his wife died and Liam Neeson wouldn't have put in the performance anything like that no Liam Neeson would have been good he wouldn't have been bad he would have been good but I mean this transcendence of course yeah exactly I really liked the film though I thought it was really good I, I, I like to split people. I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. I'll tell you the thing that really took me by surprise about it and I really enjoyed about it was uh, how funny it was. 
Yeah. So much is, humour yeah. to it. Because it's one of those things you go, oh, it's a lengthy biopic about Abraham Lincoln. It has to be dry. And it isn't at all. Mm. It's a, there's physical comedy in it. Yeah. There's wordplay. Uh, the scene with uh, Tommy Lee Jones, where he's uh, just barracking that uh, man over the voting thing yeah. where he wants to uh, defect. Uh, James Spader. James Spader is so who good at it. Six people to uh, <laughs> properly, you know, you talk about method acting. Yeah. But James Spader. Did he put all that weight? I on? have no idea. I, I imagine. <laughs> I imagine. I imagine. But um, yeah, hilarious, isn't it? Yeah, it and is. even. Um, uh, you know, Lincoln, Dana Lewis himself, some lovely yeah, uh, yeah. light moments, that wonderful scene where um, he's just sitting down with the two signalers. And, yeah, uh, yeah so uh, tells that uh, story about the portrait and whatnot. And yeah, yeah he's a raconteur, isn't That's he? The and thing, they isn't kind it? of, obviously, yeah. Dana Lewis didn't write the script. But the way he delivers those stories, yeah, and like, because people around him are like, oh, I'm not listening to another one of Lincoln's stories. <laughs> but he's just, oh, he's marvellous in it. Yeah. And it really, I mean, it's Steven Spielberg and the team that he's got involved in terms of production design and, and you know, uh, the script writer as well. It's, you know, he, he is going to have gathered uh, the best people. And it shows, I mean, the look of it is. It oh, is the cinematography is incredible. It's, it's all in the dark. Yeah. It's all, it all seems just lit by candles, doesn't it? Yeah, it, just it probably is, of, I think. And, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, uh, reminded me of. Um, what's the Kubrick? Yeah, Barry Lyndon. Yeah, 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 the go-to, isn't it? Yeah, and um, it is. Uh, you know, as I say, we've talked about films earlier where the look and the tone has been a little off, and it just takes you out a little bit. Whereas with this, you know, I think they had uh, a beard wrangler. They had a woman whose only job was to make sure that oh, they would have done yeah, a couple, right? But yeah, it's assistant just... to Mister Day Lewis's beard. <laughs> I I don't. Believe in awards. I think it could be a nice moment for people. Honestly, it's nice see to they exist. Well, yeah. Next year, we say you don't believe in blue flags. <laughs> um, and I watched Argo, and I thought it was all right. But if anything, exposes the joke that is the award system. It's one yes, where so you're yeah. overlooking uh, this performance. Well, uh, this he won. Yeah, he won. he won. But this, you know, this film, this this. Uh, the Oscar goes to Ben Affleck. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I I like Ben Affleck as a person. I think he seems like a pleasant man. Um, he does some fine work. As I, I enjoyed Argo, it, you don't need to be giving trophies for things like that, do you? No. It no. just, you know, if we're sort of going, this is the best we've done, then it's like, well, let's just stop. If that's the, the best we've <laughs> let's done, just stop. let's just leave it. We uh... won't do it anymore. But fortunately, it wasn't the best we've done, you know. Not that I thought Lincoln was filming the year either, but, you know, it seemed like much more obvious choice. Yeah, I mean, I would have gone with a master out of those. If my, yeah. my favourite film was Holy Motors, Best Foreign, so I was never going to win anything. Could have won Best Foreign Film, I suppose. <laughs> oh, a push. Are you familiar with his stage career, Steve? The only story I know of was probably one you're thinking of, The Hamlet. Yeah, yeah, 1989. Last time he was there, he's never been on stage since. No, he won't go back. No, he um, broke down uh, in the scene where he meets... Hamlet sees his father as a ghost. Yeah, and he sort of sort of had you know, visions of his own father's ghosts. Yeah, he collapsed on stage him. sobbing and then later confirmed that he saw a vision of his father in front of him. So there is already a blue plaque for Cecil Day-Lewis, Poet Laureate, 68-72. 
you read his poetry, Steve? I haven't. Cut that out then. <laughs> Have you read his poetry? Poetry, do <laughs> <laughs> So, if you want to go and visit, it's Six Crooms Hill, which is just by Greenwich Park. There's a plaque on 26 Crooms Hill for Benjamin War. Do you know him? I read about him for uh, the show. Yeah, Victorian social reformer who founded the NSPCC, or it was just called the London SPCC then, in uh, 1884. It's a blue plaque hotbed, isn't it? Crimson. Yeah, that's on the Can't wrong. Move. That's on the wrong building. <laughs> it was meant to be on the the twenty six Crims Hill when it's on sixty two. You G- can see how that's happened, is not it? The GLC made the area there. Livingston. Good thing uh, the Thatcher shut them down. Isn't it? Apparently, that was the final straw for her. If she hated anything, it was the work of social reformers being overlooked. <laughs> twenty four Crims Hill. George Orwell used to stay there. Stayed there, and that's great issue. No, nah, but he wrote a diary entry there once. Said there was a terrible mouse situation. Eileen <laughs> <laughs> O'Shaughnessy, that's his wife, isn't it? Orwell's wife? Yeah. Mm, his first wife, yeah. Her brother, who was a surgeon, lived there, so they used to stay over in it. Stayed there. And at 12 Crooms Hill, Steve, the Fan Museum. Yeah, we need to... Pop over at some point. I don't think we do. No? It's remarkable. Is it? A museum just for fans. Exactly. I'm not a fan. <laughs> After an epic recording session that went on beyond midnight, we realised that we didn't actually record the final blue plaque. And now Steve is in Ireland. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Mark, isn't it? I thought you were saying. He's obviously on Skype. Two an episode, isn't it? It's all good. I'm always uh, telling Steve he's too far away from the microphone. He's currently 500 <laughs> miles away from the microphone. Which, which is not even the furthest he's been. <laughs> but of course, the blue plaque is going up in South London. Yeah, it's a landmark in the history of broadcasting. In New Cross, Telegraph Hill. Immediately, people are thinking Telegraph Hill gets his name from one of the early Telegraph stations where news of... What was it, Steve? News of someone or other broke... I think it's about the Chicago. Yeah, this is more important. Down the bottom of Telegraph Hill, Musgrove Road, number 67A, South London Hardcore, in December 2011, was first recorded. Happy to give away your previous addresses. Like <laughs> nah, I did leave on quite bad terms with the landlord. You know, I had to pay, t- <laughs> I had to pay 200 quid. You bought him a stove, didn't you? I had to pay £200 for a stove that just had, yeah. had it. I mean, it did have a big crack in it, Steve, but it was just normal wear and tear. I mean, what do they think I was doing? Like, smashing a wok against it? People might think we're being presumptuous, giving ourselves a blue plaque for the show. But realistically, no one else is going to at the moment. So we have to, don't we? And you've got to think of it. We're basically putting down a marker for the point when English Heritage or the council, one or the other, or just another, you know, uh, body inevitably decide to put it up yeah they've got our space set aside haven't they yeah just take our one down and there'll be a a white circle there I'd say put them them alongside each other don't take our one down you know we've been doing the show for a year and a half and we have a great time doing it we do really appreciate people listening Steve this is a podcast where an episode with Hassan right who nobody's ever heard of talking about going to school and stuff gets more listeners than when Alan Moore is on the show. 
There's no, there's no rhyme or reason, is there? The thing is, if you look at the effort we put into getting Hassan on the show, it paid off, didn't it? It was much more effort than getting Alan Moore. I didn't think it was going to be worthwhile at all because I've met Hassan and spoke to him and I was like, this will be, you know, mildly interesting to maybe five people. But look at this. All 71 episodes and, you know, more and more because we'll do this until we die, won't we, Steve, probably? Yeah. Uh, are available on southlandhardcore.com they're all on iTunes, they're all free click on the episode guide and see what you like, what's been your highlight Steve? The obvious one is Alan Moore isn't it just because it was a marvellous experience wasn't it, I mean it was intoxicatingly good but he was also just everything we hoped for from the guests, you just sit down and just let him go and he's saying these wonderful things about South London you know I said to people afterwards you know Listeners are going to think we're just handing him cards of things to say. We're talking about <laughs> South London giving birth to London, and you know, Shooters Hill being his second favourite place in the world after North. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It is. It was incredible. But I mean, it, yeah, it was. Uh, but it's like, but we've had, I think, a lot of great moments that we wouldn't have had if we weren't doing the show. You know, I, I doubt whether I, my uh, I would have been as invested in Dulwich Hamlet's promotion charge this season if it wasn't for the South London Hardcore. I would have taken an interest, I think, because you would have anyway, because you've had your long standing Yeah, but it rejuvenates you, doesn't it, a bit? Yeah, absolutely. It pulls you back so in. Nice. Just when you thought you were out, it pulled you back in. <laughs> well, it was nice just as uh, I was going off football with Chelsea's uh, European Cup win at this uh, beautiful uh, counterpoint. I think... I think our relationship has blossomed too, Steve. People were listening. Yeah. They'll, they'll probably be have a tear in their eye at this. But, uh, you know, people fall by the wayside, don't they? But if you do a podcast with someone, you have to see them every I'm week. Dark. I'm a bit dark. It doesn't like black people, this camera. Don't put that on the podcast. <laughs> Obviously, yeah, more the, hashtag more the Keisha. That, the Brixton episode, number 13, which sort of sent us over the top a bit, didn't this. it? I'm not in this. No, don't put me in. Okay. Well, it's interesting you say that, because, I mean, part of, you know, part of the reason why we started this show was when we both realised we weren't going to be working together in a shop anymore. You have, you, when you, you're not working with people, you have the best intentions to stay in touch. But it's hard, isn't it? You know, yeah, you I just a... couldn't shake you. <laughs> but this gives us a regular reason to get together and, and to do things. It's great. Works a yeah, you see people that are like, oh, you seen much of Steve lately. Do you not look at my Facebook updates? Every week I'm putting up this podcast that we both do. <laughs> oh, you do, do, do nice. the podcast. If we go out with uh, people we used to work with, if I turn up first, they're like, where's Jack? And I'm like, I'm sure he's coming. He just doesn't follow alongside everywhere I go. <laughs> and vice versa. I mean, people just say, oh, wait, so he's just found you. No, he's, he lives in a different place. And there's a different route to get him. So, you know, he'll be here soon. We've also developed like, some quite lovely relationships online, I think. Oh, Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, let me finish. <laughs> you know, you're Jason Cobbs and yeah. your uh, Stratton reading groups. Can I reel off a couple of my other highlights, Steve? Absolutely. I enjoyed the Lambeth Boys episode very much, just for doing the impressions, you know. He looks so queer, doesn't he? <laughs> and I thought the South Bank episode was, was arguably our best. I thought we both brought a lot to the table there. I thought we, we nailed what we were trying to do that week. Because some weeks, like, arguably, like... It's just two guys reading out Wikipedia, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think we really tied it. That was the one time I visited the local archives. I think it kind of uh, was worth it. 
But my favourite bit we've ever done, yeah, and it was a bit that wasn't even supposed to be in the show, but it just ended up on the tape, and it was uh, just I enjoyed it so much. When we had Glenn Holmes on, who did our theme tune, and he was to, he he just he said it was just so Glenn. Um, have you ever dropped a glass of honey and had to clear it up? And we were just talking about having to clear up a glass of honey. And that's why there's a blue plaque up. <laughs> you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash southlandhardcore. Our website is southlandhardcore.com for all the pictures of the blue plaques and seeing as I've spent a load of time and the resources of the company I work for making them, <laughs> like get involved in that. And on Twitter, at SLHC. Enjoy the rest of your holiday, Steve. Thank you very much. You will be back, wouldn't you, for more episodes? Well, I don't see why I need to come back now. We can just do this. This is fine. That is where we lived. Now, is it still there? It is. It is. It's still there. It's still there.